0: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac, or drop a crispy fry between the car seats, or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's.
1: Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of the Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
0: BBC Science Focus, This is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor. If you're on social media, you might have noticed that astronomers have been posting a lot more pictures of Mars recently. That's because the planet is in opposition for the next few days, which makes it the best opportunity there's been for a few years, and indeed that there will be for a few years, to take a closer look at the planet. Here to explain what Mars being in opposition exactly means and how our view of the planet has evolved over the decades is astronomer, author and regular science focus contributor Dr. Stu Clark. He's also the editor of The Book of Mars, an anthology of fact and fiction that charts our characterization of the red planet over the last 150 years. Remind us all: Mars is in opposition this week, and you know you hear different points throughout the last ten years of different planets being in opposition. So, remind us: what, what does a planet being in opposition mean? When a planet is in
1: opposition, I mean it literally means that it is opposite the sun in the sky. And so we see it reach its highest altitude at around about midnight. But practically what that means uh, for most people is in order to see Mars in opposition, for it to be 180 degrees away from the sun, uh, it means that the Earth has to be directly in between the sun and Mars. And so that means that the Earth is actually at its closest point to mars at that time and so mars appears brightest it appears large at its largest as well um so it's generally one of those uh, moments in in astronomy you know that uh, astronomers um like to make the most of
0: it's it's throughout the whole community really so you can if it's uh skies permitting a clear day or clear night you can go out with um, one of those stargazing apps and, and find Mars and, and see it. Is that right?
1: Yes, it's very obvious in the night sky at the moment. This, you know, beautiful red Mars. I mean, it properly is red. Um, and it's very easy to notice. And you can trace it over the sky, across the southern sky, over towards the west and see Jupiter shining very um, brightly, um, as well. And then if you go further, you'll see Saturn as well. Um, more of a, a slightly dimmer sort of ochre dot right in the,
0: in the west. It's already been a sort of spectacular opportunity where I've seen astronomers and stargazers on Twitter post some just incredible uh, photos already. Is this kind of position, its its closeness and its brightness, does that also make it a, a good opportunity to study the planet?
1: Yes, anything that you you do to study Mars from the Earth um, is made a bit easier at opposition because the planets um reflecting more light and we're a bit closer so we are um you know we're seeing the disc of mars larger than it that it normally is so uh, from the earth for example you uh, astronomers monitor mars for its weather and any sort of changes that they see in the atmosphere And these are sometimes better to do from the Earth than from spacecraft because from Earth you see Mars as a whole planet. You know, the spacecraft just see little bits of the planet as they fly over it and then they stitch it all together later. Um, But to get sort of global context, um, you know, the Earth is brilliant for that because you see the planet, you know, all in the same field of view. So monitoring the terrain, um, so changes in the ice caps, for example. Um, Mars has extremely variable seasons and um, you know, the atmosphere pretty much disappears in the winter and freezes out onto the, the ice caps and the polar caps of Mars. Then in the springtime, Martians springtime when that uh, gas starts to, to um, turn back into uh, in, or come out of the ice and turn back into the gas and fill the atmosphere again you get these vast um, dust storms that can engulf the entire planet
0: and so those kind of things are um, you know monitored from Earth oh, okay so we presume there'll be sort of scopes and and observatories trained on mars at the moment to try and just gather up all, as much data as they can while it's in this indeed and even
1: even even the hubble um you know the hubble space telescope that has a a, a monitoring program uh, that's been running on mars as well
0: and so and so how how often does an opportunity like this arise how often does mars um appear in opposition it appears every uh, roughly every two years
1: and the thing with mars is that not all of these oppositions are created equal and the reason for that is because mars has an elliptical orbit and so it varies its 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 distance from the sun quite dramatically and so if we are going to have um, a very close opposition, then we need to be somewhere close to Mars being at the closest um, approach to the Sun. It's its perihelion position, and that was the case for the last couple of oppositions, sort of 2020, 2018. Now we're drifting away from that configuration, so Mars isn't quite um, as as big.
0: So we can kind of line up at different points along. All, you know both our orbits, and sometimes those can be a bit further away. And uh, and, and now I suppose we're drifting out of alignment. That's bit. it.
1: Yeah, e- exactly. But there is this, um, there there is this uh, cherry on the cake. This opposition, which is that um, on the very night of opposition itself, um, the moon will actually drift in front of Mars. So the moon will occult Mars. Mars will disappear behind the moon for about an hour and it's going to take place at around about, about 458 GMT. So it's super early in the morning, but Mars will disappear behind the moon, uh, in the early hours of the 8th of December around about 458 at that. Uh, Across the UK, the timing will vary by uh, a couple of minutes or so. Um, And then it's going to spend about an hour behind uh, the moon and pop out the other
0: side. Wow. So we might see on the 8th, we might see some sort of magical shots of a a moon kind of obscuring the face of Mars. Absolutely. I
1: bet there are uh, some astrophotographers out there. I mean, they're an incredibly skilled bunch, some of them. And so we'll see sort of like the the lunar limb actually sort of biting through half of Mars, you know, as it disappears um, behind, because it won't just suddenly disappear. The moon will actually cross the face of Mars. And so being at opposition where... You've got the you know a large diameter, large angular diameter there for Mars. It gives a lot of opportunity to actually watch that happening.
0: So you've just uh, actually edited an anthology uh, called "The Book of Mars," and correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's made up of around a hundred different pieces of writing: short stories, news pieces, fiction, non-fiction. Is it fair to say, having put that together, that that Mars is the planet that we sort of know most about and have written most about you know other than earth of course yes
1: yeah, so it's 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 very clear i think that mars is the most observed planet after earth but it's also the planet that has completely captured our attention and, and i think there are a number of reasons for this one is that it does go through this rather dramatic series of oppositions so Jupiter and Saturn, for example, they stay relatively constant beacons in the, the night sky. They move to and from uh, the sun, so we sometimes lose them from view. But they're so far away that their um, their brightness in the night sky doesn't change that dramatically and then we have flighty venus and even flightier mercury that never you know stray far from the sun and uh, but but mars goes through this extraordinary uh, you know dimming and brightening it's this Gorgeous red colour. It it seems to draw your attention um, very much. It does these little retrograde um, loops in the night sky as well, where it appears to backtrack uh, and then carry on. I mean, all the, all the outer planets, um, do that as well, but it's, it's particularly obvious, I think, on, on Mars. And it's right in the middle of one of these sort of retrograde loops at the moment. They always happen, um, at opposition because of our changing line of sight from the Earth to the planet. Uh, but then of course, <clears throat> I think one of the key things is that Mars has this, uh, this terrain that you can see even with relatively small telescopes. And it, that changes as well with the seasons. And so it, it absolutely captured people's imagination. And you can see in the writings, so the, 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 the book itself, I mean, it's just called The Book of Mars. As you say, it's about a 100 uh, writings, both fiction and nonfiction, and they span about 150 years. And by looking at the, the science and then the stories that were being written about Mars, I could sort of trace the diffusion of, of scientific knowledge into this uh, sort of the, the cultural appreciation of Mars, see which of the ideas about the planets um, held on for a long time, even after they were um, disproved by science and, and those kind of things. It's been uh, you know, absolutely fascinating to um, to chart this understanding. And I think it's safe to say that, in that period of time in that last 150 years and um, we're still just as fascinated by mars today um, as we were back then mm. it's
0: interesting you mentioned the i'd never thought about the the sort of terrain of mars i suppose being able to see that and and liken it to our own and personify it is probably quite a big factor because there is a there's a planetary scientist who we've interviewed before called paul Byrne, who um feels very passionately that that mars has stolen venus's spotlight or it's it's time zone and so i just wanted to sort of ask you what 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 your thoughts on this are certainly in the last decade mars has been has enjoyed a lot of popular attention both from the media and the public in terms of you know musk wanting to go there people want to form a base there's there's obviously sort of habitability reasons for that mars is a lot friendlier place than venus but I wondered what your thoughts were. Why, why it's so, so popular as a planet and as a place for study compared to something like Venus, which, as Paul would argue, it, it is kind of the closest thing Earth has to a twin and uh, has a very sort of similar orbit and, and it's quite close to us. Well, why is Mars so, say more popular than Venus?
1: Yeah, it is an interesting question because, of course, Venus actually comes closer to us than Mars does. Uh, you know, it's brighter. In the sky um, than Mars is, but I think one of the issues with Venus, of course, is that it's completely covered by clouds. It's extremely difficult to see any level um, of detail uh, through a telescope with Venus. You know, it hides its secrets very well. And when we have gone there, you know, we've found it really quite inhospitable with the uh, the temperature and the composition of the atmosphere mars on the other hand resembles as an extreme desert and i think when we see it, it it you know we can land on it we can move around on it we can look at it and we can see familiar landscapes you know cliffs craters desert plains these kinds of things so you know, it does have an atmosphere. It's um, it's it's very tenuous. It's mostly carbon dioxide, so it's not at all breathable. Um there's there's lots of evidence for water on Mars, certainly in the past, maybe even today as well. So everything adds up to it being a challenge. But you can imagine um, mounting that challenge to go and and. And live on Mars to create a base on Mars to explore it with people, and that's and, and it's so fascinating, you know. That, that's reflected in the earliest writings of of uh, that that I put in the anthology, because every idealized society that you can imagine, everyone's different view of what utopia looks like whether that's a communist utopia whether that's a feminist utopia um you know a, a a a a capitalist utopia and all of those were translated into stories and placed on mars by these early um often 19th century um and very early 20th century uh writers as well so there's there's a there's a real sense of the 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 idea of mars as as a venue for an, a human utopia, but that utopia takes whatever form you believe utopia is.
0: So it's like a bit it's a it's a, it's a fresh start and attainable, but it's a it's a, a good venue for a fresh start. So I mean, you touched on it there, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear your take on how our idea of the planet has. You know, going back, as I don't know how far back, you, you said 150 years, but um, I imagine you probably had to look further back than that. How has how our sense of the planet changed over the decades?
1: Mm, so I believe, so the, the earliest piece um, is from 1873. And this was the beginning of the telescopic observations of Mars that started to show um, what we now know were optical illusions. Uh, but these straight lines that um, people called the canals. And it's that, I think, really, this idea that, um, that that astronomers were seeing things that made it look as if Mars might be either inhabitable or inhabited. And that sparks just this major cultural and scientific investigation of the possibilities uh, of Mars, and gradually, as the astronomers sort of unpack all of that and sort of show us that um, there are no canals there's no water there's hardly any water vapor for a start, and that was the first observation a sort of spectroscopic observation of the atmosphere of Mars that made it clear that there was no widespread water vapor <clears throat> in the planet's atmosphere, therefore there was n- there, there, there couldn't be open bodies of water or canals or anything like that on the planet. But the idea of the canals is so prevalent in in, in sort of culture by this time. You still have people in the 1950s, you know, um, which is you know, 40 years after astronomers start to realise there's no canals, there's no widespread water on Mars, on the surface certainly. You still have people, you know, like Ray Bradbury, like Philip K. Dick, still writing about canals, but they've morphed them now. They've morphed them into the relics of, you know, dead civilizations, or they've used Mars now and this is super interesting, the way this comes out from American writers as well. They have used that idea that, um, well, if they really are, if they even are still canals, you know, they're completely derelict. The, The planets are drying up desert and therefore any life, the people that built the canals, they're they're a decaying civilization. They're an indigenous people on the back foot. And so Mars then becomes a venue for the exploration of, you know, white colonialism across america and how far does the american ideal of manifest destiny go before it becomes too far so you read these stories about colonizing mars in that same way and, and displacing this indigenous population so mars becomes this crucible that you can pretty much explore anything that's happened on the earth or that you want to on earth but just put it in an exotic environment,
0: so that that's fascinating. That 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 idea of the canals, that that moment when we see something, I suppose that's a reflection of what we know here on Earth becomes really deeply embedded in culture up to the fifties. And you and you mentioned Philip K. Dick then, and to me, the first thing I think of is Total Recall and the idea that these these underground tunnels. And I, I have this sort of faint memory of these visuals of kind of Straight lines under the ground is that what you 're sort of referring to about k- philip k dick there and and how it appeared in his work? Yeah,
1: in fact, you know he uses
0: Mars in several of his
1: novels. Uh, the one I decided to go for um the excerpt for this particular piece was from his novel martian time Slip, and that was super interesting to me because that 's where he sort of full on uses the Martians. Uh, as As the displaced indigenous population they 're not extinct they 're just being trampled all over um by the earth um settlers and The other thing that I found fascinating about that book as well was that he kind of uh, he he kind of anticipates the mental health um, epidemic and uh, so he talks a lot um uh, about mental health and his his lead character suffers. But the question that comes up in the book um, is whether this sort of neurodiversity is just normal to, say, other cultures and other races. So so the Martians, for example, may appear simplistic to the human settlers, but there's so much more going on in their minds, and uh, you know, some of the more neurodiverse humans um, Find it easier to understand the Martian way of life because of their different perceptions and the different
0: ways that their brains work. I, I want to just then ask about sort of where we are today and, and the, the, I guess the big question of the moment, uh, particularly in the backdrop of the Artemis launches, which is, you know, the missions that will, you know, is, uh, are set to t- put humans back on the moon but often in in the same breath we talk about them as the ones that will then lead us to mars having having digested all of this history and culture i'd love to know how how long do you th- do you think it'll be before we uh, are able to actually set foot on the planet yeah i think it's it is it's still difficult i mean it really is
1: difficult the interesting thing about this is is elon musk he's the wild card in the equation yeah artemis is amazing i mean it truly is um and to see the european space agency so deeply embedded in those missions you know with providing hardware the the uh you know, that, that that keeps the capsule powered and um, supplies communications and all of that, the, the service module is just absolutely amazing. So we'll definitely see people going back to the moon, and I think relatively soon. And of course, Elon Musk is absolutely, completely embedded in that effort. And then he might be the one that drives, you know, forward to Mars and and sort of drags the, the the national space agencies with with him, or motivates them so that he again plays a key role in all of that. One thing that's been very clear ever since the the, the finish of the Apollo missions, um, you know, in the nineteen seventies, is that NASA has talked an awful lot about going to Mars, but we've seen no real, um, how can we say, sort of political or financial commitment to make that happen. And perhaps NASA is not... Perhaps NASA is not best placed to do it in the most cost-effective way possible, simply because it is a government agency. So it has to be it has to always be thinking about safety. And I'm not saying you should be cavalier about that, um, but it's it's its hands are tied when it comes to those kinds of things. And and so maybe this new move of a real commercial sector. In space, as we're seeing developing, you know, maybe that's the thing that will actually um, make cost-effective systems um, that, that get us to Mars safely. And so, there's a new deal to be done between the private sector and the national space agencies. Uh, and I would also say that I think having space agencies like ESA and others, JAXA, the Japanese agency, really upping. Uh, their game their abilities you know what they're doing is astonishing and now it can be a much more global effort you know the 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 chinese are doing extraordinary things in space and okay that might be um sort of pushing a rivalry angle there um but all i think all of these things are coming together at a time which will make this actually happen now
0: Hmm. so you so you suggesting that effectively uh what what we might see play out in uh, over on the moon in the next f- decades will be a sort of collaborative private public sector partnership. And if those companies, those private companies win big, then they might then turn their sights to, to Mars and, and, and think of another collaborative way to get there in order to sort of. That's um, my feeling. Replicate. Yeah. Yeah that that that's
1: my feeling we'll see i mean whatever happens it's going to be fascinating to to play out but i think it feels like the era of the large nationally funded big mission um to me feels somewhat over and even the ideas of all these national space agencies collaborating together that eases that and makes bigger projects possible but i I, my feeling is there's a big role, even if it's just supply chain, uh, it, it, for the private sector as well, and they can increasingly play that um, play that part. And the more we use space, the more off the shelf these kind of components and these systems are going to become. And the um, the smaller the tweaking that needs to be done in order to adapt them, say, to Mars from From the moon. So, I suppose what I'm trying to say in this rambly way um, is that the era of of big bespoke missions like Apollo, I think, is probably over, but we'll see an organic sort of movement outwards into the solar system.
0: Do you think I can pin you to a decade
1: that we might? I think, for purely selfish reasons, um, I'd quite like it to be in the 2030s. Yeah,
0: that'd be pretty nice. <laughs> yes, and then I just wondered: do you do you sort of just lastly do you, I suppose buy into is the wrong phrasing, but do do you buy into the idea that we need to put people uh, on Mars as opposed to robots? Do you think we need to be there in the flesh? and and what you know could you expand on why that why you think that's important
1: yes i do actually and you know i thought a lot about this quite recently especially um while editing the book and sort of starting to sort of understand trying, trying to think my way through mars has captured us so completely and it's a process that began actually when i was writing my Previous book, *Beneath the Night*, um, which was all about why are we so fascinated by the night sky, and and that's a fascination that dates back throughout human history. You know, some the, the very earliest writings are about the night sky. You know, we 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 really um, to the wider universe, and Mars is that. Beacon um, that draws us outwards now, and the reason I think it's important that humans go is because of this fascination, this perennial fascination with the wider universe and what does it what does it mean to be alive in this big universe? So it, it gets a little philosophical. It sort of departs a little bit from sort of the pure science of investigation and knowledge gathering. But it becomes, you. what's our role in the universe? As at the moment, we are the only intelligent creatures that we know of um, that exist in the universe. That may not be the case at all. The universe may be teeming with intelligences. But what does that mean now that we can have those thoughts, now that we can think, what's our place in the universe? Why are we here? What's the meaning of it all? And all of those things. And it's something that I think from my journalistic background, the the answer almost becomes obvious. And it is, you know, what is the role of a journalist? Well, it's to bear witness to things that your readers can't. So you become this uh this this this, this funnel, if you like, for telegraphing experience. And that's the same, really, for the human race being alive in this mighty universe. Our, our job, if you like, is to bear witness to the universe. We are uh, an evolutionary process, you know, of the universe. Consciousness has come about you know, through the random shufflings of, um, of of molecules and chemicals. We are a way for the universe to know itself and you know as i say this gets very metaphysical and you know and uh, and quite philosophical that means to me it's no surprise that we want to go out and explore these new places <clears throat> it's no surprise that we want to experience what it would be like to stand on the moon to stand on mars to achieve something by building a base there you know that it it just becomes so obvious that that's part of what humans do, and it ultimately comes down to the fact: there's no single reason to do it, but there's every reason to do it because there's as, as many individuals as there are on Earth, there will be as many reasons to to do these things. You know, people will find their own justifications for going or not going, and it, it's so it's inevitable. It's just who we are, um, and the. Trick and the challenge is to do it in the most responsible way possible so we're just not some sort of um, rampaging force through the, the solar system, you know, um, but uh, that we can do it with respect for the local environment and, um, and understand properly what it means to do these things and the kind of stewardship uh,
0: that would come uh, with exploration. <laughs> That was Dr. Stu Clark there, talking about our future on Mars. Now, if you'd like to find out more about our understanding of the red planet, do check out The Book of Mars, which is on sale now and published by the head of Zeus. Thanks for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, do come find us online at sciencefocus.com.